0: Morning. morning. Let's get started. Um, today, what we're going to learn is the blessing of Elokai Neshama, uh, which is on page 16, if you have this art scroll edition, this uh, page one right here. Um, I'll, I'll, re- I'll read it outside though, so we can, we can work with it together. So the blessing goes like this. My God, the soul you placed within me is pure. You created it, you fashioned it, you breathed it into me, you safeguard it within me, and eventually you will take it from me and restore it to me in time to come. As long as the soul is within me, I gratefully thank you, Hashem, my God, and the God of my forefathers, master of all works, Lord of all souls. Blessed are you, Hashem, who restores souls to dead bodies. That is the prayer that we say. So let's try to break it down into smaller parts and figure out exactly what we're expressing here. Now, one question that is dealt with in Jewish law is when do we say it? Exactly when we're supposed to be saying it, our custom is we say it right after we say the Asher Yatzar blessing that we learned about last week, the blessing that we make after using the rest. Now, if you look at the very first word, the very first word is Elohai, my God. We're trying to express a personal relationship with God, specifically in regards to the soul that God has given us. We don't thank God in a collective form. Sometimes when we're making blessings, we say something as, if we are all, the whole are speaking to God. When it comes to our soul, we don't thank God as one unit, as one nation. We thank God as individuals. And the reason for that is souls are uniquely different. Every soul is completely unlike every other soul that exists in the world. It comes directly from God. We mentioned last week the idea that the soul, the Torah, tells us that God creates man and woman, and then he breathes into them. When he breathes into them, the Zoar, right, the Kabbalah, explains to us that it means when you breathe out, to someone else, you're breathing some of what is inside of you into that person. So the Zohar is telling us is that what the Torah is expressing over here, is trying to teach us this very important lesson that we all have something of God within us. Now, each one of us has this different part of God, so to speak, that is, has been breathed into us. So, We're going to have to go back again to a little bit of Kabbalah, not a lot, a little bit of Kabbalah in terms of when we start discussing soul, we're going to have to use some sort of terminology that is relatable, right? Obviously, we're trying to define something that is, in truth, completely above any any real ability to relate to, but we're going to try to make it as, as relatable as possible. Kabbalah teaches us that the neshama, the soul, is really five different components. They are called the ruach, the nefesh the neshama, the chaya, and the yechida. Okay, we don't have to get into exactly what they mean. But what's important to recognize is when we talk about these five components of the soul, we're really trying to define something. We're trying to figure out how could it be that God who is so much above us can give us something that will become part of who we are. What does that mean? Like it, it, Us lowly people that we could have a part of God within us, it, it, it almost defies comprehension. So we're trying to figure out what that means. So Kabbalah explains, based on the concept of the wrote of the spheres, that God is indeed very far above us. But what happens is that when God creates the world, we mentioned in the past, if God would reveal all of his light to the world, it would not be possible for us to fulfill our mission. We would no longer have free will. It would be too obvious to us what the right thing to do would be. So therefore, God has to restrict himself and not reveal everything to the world. We know the tradition teaches us that initially God was indeed far more present in the world when he first created the world. And that was called the original light. But then what he did is it became the Arhaganus, the light that was hidden, the light that was put away for the future. Because it was going to be too revealed and would completely impede our ability to actually practice free will. So therefore he removed himself from this world. Now, when we talk about removing himself from the world, he's also somewhat in this world. So, how do we sort of reconcile these two ideas? So, we talk about this constriction process, which is called in Hebrew, simtzung, right? Litzam tzem means to constrict, right? Or to restrict, right? So, God actually restricts himself from this world. In terms of having given us a soul, there's a part of him that in the highest level of getting closer and closer to God, what we call the olam ha'atzilut. Atzilut comes from the Hebrew word etzel, not etzel as in Lechi and Haganah, but Etzel as Aleph tzadi Lamid, which means to be close to. Okay. Now anyway, so we talk about the the highest, the highest world, right? The highest, most elevated part of the world, which would be the not the universe that we exist in, but a universe on a plane far higher than what we exist in. That is the part in which God creates a soul that is a part of himself. It is a portion of God. Now that portion of God does not really make it into our body. We spoke last week about the idea that our body is able to be a physical repository for a spiritual entity, right? That spiritual entity is not going to be the highest part of the soul. You say there's five different parts of the soul. The highest parts of the soul, the Chaya and the yichida. Those are parts that do not actually make it into our body. Once again, as I said last week, talk about being in our body, the whole idea is a very vague, you know, esoteric concept. But there are different parts of the soul. Some parts of the soul make it into our body, some parts of the soul do not. When we talk about how God relates to this, to these parts of the soul, as the part of the soul gets closer and closer to our world and further and further away from God, it becomes more and more constricted in what its capabilities are. So we said that the atzilut um, means what's close to God, and it just is, it has always existed, it will always exist. The next world of bria means to create something from nothing, right? The concept of yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. Then we go to the world of forming something that has been created, a mass that is formless. It becomes create, it becomes formed into a specific type of, of, uh, of entity, and that would be called the world of yitzirah, where things are formed, yet set to form. Then we go to the world of bringing it into the practical and physical existence, and we call that the olam ha'asiyah, the world of doing. And doing in a way that we are able to perceive, in a way that we are able to actually relate to in a very physical sense. So... Different parts of the soul are going to be related to different parts of how far removed from this world we are. However, we certainly do have an actual soul within us. That soul is distinct from the ability of animals to move, it is distinct from the ability of animals to think and perceive. It is the soul that allows us free will. Okay. So when we talk about Elokei Neshama, so let's read those words again a little bit more slowly, and let's see what we're trying to express to God. So right away what we say is, the, the soul you place within me is pure. This is a very important idea that is, I want to say, unique to Judaism. I have not studied many religions. However, it is certainly in contrast distinction to Christianity. Christianity has the doctrine of original sin, that we are... If, impure and there is no way for us to purify our soul our only hope for salvation if we were talking christianity would be to believe in their founder right but judaism says the completely not true the soul itself is completely pure there might be disputes by the way between the hasidic tradition and other traditions as to which part of the soul will always remain pure? Is it all five levels of soul will always remain pure? Or is it only some of the higher levels of soul that are closer to God that will always remain pure? But conceptually, the soul is born, created, pure. And it's up to us to determine what we do with it. So God, the soul that you place within me is pure, right? Now, then what we say is you created it So he created something. In other words, initially that soul is a part of God, so it wasn't created. God always is. God always will be. God always was. So it's not created. That just is. But then he creates something. In other words, he takes that part of himself and he makes it a little bit, a new form for it, a new creation so to remove it from his presence so that it is able to connect to this world. Then the next level is in the world of forming. Then what we did is, Hashem, you fashioned it. That is in the world of fashioning of Yetzer. Then what we say is, you breathed it into me. That's in the world of, of um, Asiya, where it actually comes into our bodies. Okay, So what we're trying to recognize as we wake up in the morning and as we start our morning process, this is pretty early on in our morning process. What we're trying to recognize and express is exactly what the connection is between us and God before we even start to pray we want to inculcate in ourselves and repeat to ourselves and review the concept of what it is the nature of the connection between us and God uh, someone just okay so that is the the first ideas that we're trying to express in terms of in terms of what the the special blessing of Elkin shama special prayer of Elohim shama is now, I want to point out something else that's very important to recognize the soul as i said before is completely unique now when we think of our physical bodies right our genetic code we are related to every other human who has ever existed in this world right there's something we have very much in common far more in common than we have that is not in common in terms of our physical body in terms of our genetic code and certainly our close relatives even closer and certainly you know, immediate family, that's the closest that you can get in this world in terms of having the connections that are apparent and inherent to each of our physical bodies. However, the soul of each individual is completely unique and is not related at all to any other person. What that means is when you bring someone into this world, if you have a child, what you have done is you brought something into the world, the genetic material is half yours, half your wife, half your spouse. However, When you talk about the soul, my soul and my child's soul are completely not connected. They are so completely unique that even a parent and a child have no connection in the soul world. Okay. The important thing to to recognize is how incredibly unique every single individual soul is and how every single soul has its own specific mission to carry out in this world. So... As we said, God breathed it into us in which the world of Asiya, the world in which we do actions and we actually see results, we're focused on the idea of, like we said in Asha Yatsar, God breathed something into us and it is able to stay within our physical body. An incredible idea, something from God in our physical body. We then say, you will take it from me and restore it to me in time to come. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to the idea that we recognize that One day we will die. Our physical body will cease to exist. Our soul will go back to God. We're expressing this idea, Judaism is not afraid of death, right? Judaism believes that there is a world to come. Judaism believes that there is a world of the soul. We are not afraid of death. It's an important thing to recognize that the purpose of life is for the soul. So we discussed the idea that there will be immortality for the soul. When we recognize that, then we sort of keep things in perspective as to what we're accomplishing in this world as we can see it in physical accomplishments. I start a startup and I'm doing great with my startup. Whatever it is that I'm doing, the recognition that that is limited in scope as opposed to the soul that is immortal. As long as the soul is within me, I gratefully thank you. Right, This is the idea of saying thank you to Hashem and the importance of recognizing that and particularly When it comes to the idea that we were created with a soul, it's a critical time in which we express our thanks to ourselves. We then say that he's not just my God. He's the God of my forefathers. He's the master of all the works in as far as we see them. He's also the Lord of all souls. We finish with is our belief in in the resurrection of the dead, which is one of the fundamental principles of Jewish faith, according to the Ramah, according to the Maimonides. Not not that people disagree with that, but in terms of Maimonides is the one who put it down as the thirteen fundamentals of faith. So now what we're going to go on to is what are called the Birchat Hashachar, the blessings of the morning. And these are some of the most powerful, very short, very succinct blessings that we can possibly say. If someone would ask me, I'm ready to spend a little bit of time every day praying, but it has to be something meaningful. Or else it's just not gonna stick. I would say what they should focus on is the blessings of the morning. It's maybe it could be as short as, you know, I don't know, maybe one minute to say it. But if you can say it properly and if you can appreciate what you're saying, it's a completely different, it's like a game changer in terms of how it grounds you and gives you a completely different perspective of what the purpose of life is and makes your day a completely different kind of day. So let's let's see. Okay. So we are on source number one, and the Gemara tells us, you know, it actually I was I was supposed to do this the first the first uh, first topic, um, so we're gonna uh, we'll we'll leave this aside this first this first source although it is a pretty fascinating idea that the Gemara is talking about over here, but we're gonna go to the next source, okay? Source number two, and the Talmud tells us like this: the Talmud brings a verse in the Torah, a verse in Psalms, and the verse tells us like this: it says. Which means, to God is the earth and everything within it. Elsewhere, right, in Psalms, it also says, the heavens are the Lord, are long to God. adam. However, the land he has given to mankind. This is actually in Halal, which we say today because it is Hanukkah. So, this is actually one of the Psalms that we say today. So on the one hand, we say that God is the master of the earth. On the other hand, we say God has given the earth over to mankind. Well, which is it? Is God still in charge of the earth or has God given it over to mankind? This is the Gemara's question. Gemara tells a fascinating answer. He himself resolves the contradiction. This is not difficult. Here, the verse that says that the earth is the Lord's, the verse the situation before a blessing is recited. And here, where it says that he gave the earth to mankind, refers to after a blessing is recited. So let me give a little bit of explanation of what we're talking about over here. We're referring to specifically the brachot that are called the which means blessings that we make before we enjoy a pleasure in this world. So if we're about to enjoy a pleasure in this world, a world that God created for us to enjoy ourselves. And we are about to enjoy that pleasure. If we do so without acknowledging our gratitude, and giving a blessing to God for having created us and giving us this opportunity to enjoy that pleasure, then God says, I don't want you to enjoy that pleasure. You're taking something from me without my permission, so to speak. But then when we make that blessing, God says, you made the blessing, I created the world for you. So the difference between these two verses are, are we talking about before you make that blessing, right immediately prior to having a benefit from this world or after making that blessing, and then, immediately prior, then you're allowed to actually have your benefit from this world. Okay, so point number one that we have to establish is the concept of a birchat that through making this blessing, through making this expression of gratitude to God, what we are essentially doing is we are taking our ability to have the ownership or the dominion over the world. We are taking that ability from God and taking it to ourselves. So now the next mar is going to tell us some of the blessings that we should be making. Mar tells us like this: it's a long list. We'll go through them. When one awakens, he recites, "My God, the soul you have placed within me is pure. You formed it within me, you breathed it into me, and you guard it while it was in within me, while it is within me." This is the blessing of and Shama that we just read. One day you will take it from me and restore it within me in the time to come. As long as the soul is within me, I thank you, O oh Lord my God and God of my ancestors, master of all worlds, Lord of all souls. Blessed are you, O oh Lord, who restores souls to lifeless bodies. In other words, what the Gemara is telling us, when you wake up in the morning, first thing you do is you say, that's how you start your day. Next, upon hearing the sound of the rooster, one should recite, blessed are you, of God, right, who gave the heart, the sechvi, right, sin, chaf, beys, yud, understanding to distinguish between day and night. So when you hear the rooster crow, this is when you make this first blessing of the morning. Upon opening his eyes, one should recite, blessed are you who gives sight to the blind. Upon sitting up straight in your bed, one should recite, blessed are you who sets captives free. Upon dressing, One should recite, blessed are you who clothes the naked as they would sleep. This is parenthetical. The Gemara makes it clear elsewhere that they did not have PJs in the times of the Gemara. They would sleep actually completely unclothed. Upon standing up straight, one should recite, blessed are you who raises those who are bowed down. Upon descending from one's bed to the ground, one should recite, blessed are you who spreads the earth above the waters. Thanksgiving for the creation of solid ground upon which to walk. We're going through these quickly because we're going to end up going through them each at depth. I'm just reading through the Gemara now. When we go through them in the blessings, we will do it in a slower fashion so we can actually concentrate and focus on each one separately. Upon walking, one should recite, Blessed are you who makes firm the steps of man. Upon putting on his shoes, one should recite, Blessed are you who has provided me with all I need. As shoes are a basic necessity. Upon putting on his belt, one should recite, blessed are you who girds Israel's strength. Upon spreading his shawl on his head, one should recite the blessing of um, blessed are you who crowns Israel with glory upon wrapping himself in ritual fringes, one should recite, blessed are you has made us holy through his garments and has commanded us to wrap ourselves in a garment, ritual fringes, that is the tzitzit. Upon donning the phylacteries, you make the blessing on the phylacteries and so on and so forth, okay? Until upon washing his face, one recites blessed who removes the band of sleep from my eyes and slumber from my eyelids. And then we go through this and prayer. And we're going to do, we're not going to read it right now, but we are going to read it because that is something that we read every day. We are going to read it and focus on it when we get up to that in the blessings. This, this is not going to be over this week, this, this specific uh, set of 15 blessings. We're going to start this week. We're not going to finish this week. Okay. So then what we come to is like this, the next source and source number, I guess, five, it is taught in a bright that also a gemar. That Rabbi Meir would say, a man is obligated to recite three blessings every day, praising God for his kindness. And these blessings are, who did not make me a Gentile, who did not make me a woman, and who did not make me an ignoramus. Rabbi Yaakov heard his son reciting the blessing, who did not make me an ignorance. Rabbi Yaakov said to him, is it in fact proper to go this far in reciting the blessings? Rabbi son said to him, rather, what blessings should one recite? If you will say that one should recite, who did not make me a slave, that is the same as a woman. Why should one recite two blessings about the same matter? But after Yaakov answered, nevertheless, slave is more lowly than a woman, and therefore it is appropriate to recite an additional blessing on not having been born a slave. Now, I'm expecting people to be bothered by this idea. The idea of these three blessings that definitely seem to be chauvinistic, uh, ethnocentric, um, egocentric, I don't know, whatever else you wanna throw in there, it just seems a little bit crazy. And this is something that has bothered people, and certainly in more recent times, and in many um, denominations of Judaism, they either take it out or they do other things with it. What we're going to do some time today, we're going to actually understand what the sages actually had in mind. And then through getting that understanding, I think it will will become quite clear as to why this is completely an appropriate thing to still say today. And even with our progressive understanding of the world today, nothing has changed from what the sages had in mind. Um, now, this is actually two separate gemaras. The gemara that tells us to put together the blessings about our morning routine and the gemara that tells us to give thanks to God are two separate gemaras. They're not the same promulgated passage. The practice today is we put them together. So if you look at the sidur, if you have the art school sidor on page 19, We read, blessed are you, Hashem, our God, king of the universe, who gave the heart, understanding, to distinguish between day and night. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, king of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. And then we put in the slave, then we put in woman, and then we go back to the listing of the blessings that the Gemara tells us we have to give thanks to God. So why are we putting these two things together? We're going to deal with that as well as we start going through the blessings. So let's begin. That first blessing that we say is, Blessed are you. In the Hebrew, the word is Asher Natan la-sehvi vina leHavchin benom lola. Who has given Sechvi, which is translated as different things, and we'll see exactly why. The understanding, the ability to distinguish between day and night. Now, Sechvi is in the Ar- Aramaic. It actually means a rooster. So it's really referring to the fact that the rooster has the ability to distinguish between day and night. Now. When you talk about ability to distinguish between things, if these things are very dissimilar, it's very easy to distinguish between them. If these things are very similar, then it becomes a lot more difficult to distinguish between them. The rooster has the ability that as soon as the actual light comes above, boom, he starts crowing. And the simple understanding, and this is how many of the early Talmudic commentators understand this blessing. We're just referring to the fact we are giving our appreciation to God for having given the ability to distinguish between light and darkness to a rooster. And that rooster is our built-in alarm clock. So we're really just giving our thanks to God for that, having given that innate ability to the rooster. Um, so Tosavos, was written by the uh, you know a, a group of scholars in France and in Germany in the 1100s and even 1200s, that's how they understand it. it's referring to a rooster. And we're thanking God for giving the rooster that way. Another way, other Rishonim, the Rush, Rabbeinu Asher, who was from Germany and moved to Spain towards the end of his life, he explains it is not referring to a rooster. It's rather sin, chaf, v'av, yod, right? Think of it, and therefore what it means is there's a word, a phrase in Tehillim, in Psalms, and it goes maskiot haleif, which means the insight of the heart. So what we really mean now is, sahvi does not mean rooster. Sahvi means the ability of the heart to see. So we have two different approaches to what this phrase, what the sages had in mind when they obligated us to say this phrase. You can really put the two phrases together. And if we put them both together, then what do we mean? We are thanking God for giving the rooster the ability to distinguish and crow when the light comes up, thereby, awakening our hearts to the coming dawn, right? So it's a more complex blessing now. It's not a very simple blessing, but we put these two things together. Now we have a deeper understanding of what it is that we're thanking God. Now, as everybody remembers, we are reading, coming off of this book, Rashwab Schwab on Prayer, and he asks an interesting question. He says, if we're very happy that the rooster has this ability to distinguish between when it's only a tiny bit light and he knows exactly when it's happening, Well, why don't we make the same blessing at nighttime, right? We have a similar process where the sun is going down. Is it really dark yet? Is there still some rays of the horizon? As soon as it gets really, really dark, we should make a blessing. Thank you, God, for having given our heart the ability to distinguish. Or perhaps we should have a different um, possibility uh, in the world. And a rooster should crow when it becomes dark, right? A confused rooster, we would call that. But why don't we have a similar concept when it becomes dark of making a blessing? So he says, there is an emotional state that is evoked in each and every one of us. When daylight comes up and that sun comes up, there's a sense of optimism. The daybreak, right, it's it's an analogy that has been used in so many different places and ways by writers, by, by films, by everybody, because it is true. It is universal truth. When the sun comes up, there's a sense of promise inherent to that. There's latent potential in a new day, in a day that we can accomplish. When the sun goes down, you know, we have our rhythms, we have our circadian rhythm. The sun goes down, we have a different sense of where we're up to, and our body starts cycling down, right? So when we make this blessing, we don't just make this blessing about the ability to distinguish, we make this blessing when we have that sense of optimism in our lives. Now... So what we're saying at this point is the idea of making this blessing is we're expressing appreciation to God for giving the rooster the ability, which then gives us our, our own self, our hearts, the ability to recognize it's time to start doing action and to fulfill our mission of whatever we're supposed to be doing that day. Now, why did the sages at a later point stick the blessings about not making us a Gentile right over here? Why was that important to stick right here? So Rav Schwab wants to explain like this. The rooster differentiates at a time when it is difficult to differentiate between darkness and light. So too, the Jewish people, we, are given a mandate to come to a world that is dark. What does it mean the world is dark? The Talmud says the world is dark. And without the light, you cannot, you cannot see where you're going. What do we mean by dark, right? It's, it's not dark, it's light outside, right? Mean, especially today, we have we have uh, artificial light. So it's never really dark if you don't want it to be dark. right? So what does it mean dark? What the Talmud needs to say is, The lack of clarity, the moral ambiguity that was introduced to the world when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and bad, that is the darkness that we refer to. Our inability to distinguish between good and bad, between right and wrong. The Jewish people have been tasked, we have been tasked with bringing the light of the Torah that will help clarify our actions and will help clarify our decisions in life. That is our purpose. We are a mamleches Kohanim and an Kadesh, right? We are a holy nation. And our one of our primary purposes in our creation was for us to be the light onto the nations. Or La amim, right? Or lagayim, right? So what we're trying to say is the same way the rooster distinguishes between light and darkness and awakens us to our mission and gives us the time to get out of bed and recognize the latent potential of the day. So too, we as Jews have the ability to distinguish because of the Torah, because of our heritage of the Torah, we have the ability to distinguish between light and darkness in a more uh, allegorical sense. And that is precisely the right time to acknowledge the privilege of our greatness. Right then, right when we're expressing our appreciation to God for creating the rooster that can distinguish between physical light and darkness, we then express our appreciation to God for having given us the Torah because it's the ability to distinguish between spiritual light and darkness. Okay, so that explains why we stuck this over here. Now, let's answer the question that I think people were bothered with, right? Should be bothered with, which is, why are these three blessings, even if we wanna say that they're not supposed to be chauvinistic, why are they in the negative? Why can't we just say, thank you God for having made me a Jewish man, right? Or if we are a woman, thank you God for having made us a Jewish woman. Why are they in the negative? Why are they, thank you for not having done something, right? It's a little bit of an odd thing to think someone, right? So this question was asked already by the Bach of the Circus who lived in the 1600s, early 1600s, in Poland. And he explains like this, the Gemara tells us a famous dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. And the dispute goes like this, is it better for man to be created or is it better for man not to be created? It seems like a, almost a funny question. I don't know, <laughs> this is what God wanted. But the question was, is it better for us to be created or not? The question really is, given the sense that most people, unfortunately, don't do the right thing, when we come into this world, we are not fulfilling God's mission. And instead of creating a world that is a bright place and a place in which we are bringing the the light to the dark world, the world doesn't necessarily seem to always be heading in the right trajectory. So it seems to be not validating God's decision to create the world. It's creating a chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name. So the Gemara goes back and forth about this. And for two and a half years, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel are arguing, is it better to be created or better to not be created? And the conclusion was, it is better to not have been created. However, now that we are created, we have to do what the right thing is to do. So for us to say, thank you God for having created me, that's a falsehood, right? To some extent, we are not thanking God for having created us. It would be better for us not to be created. We recognize our frailty. We recognize that we often sin and fail in our mission. So we don't thank God for having created us. We thank God for not having created us in a different fashion. Now, we still have to deal with the problem. It doesn't seem like a nice way of speaking. It certainly is not a the equality that we, we think of today. Uh, this past week at the d- dinner table, uh, I mentioned something to my daughters. My daughter said that they had, a um, in middle school, they had some sort of game or dodgeball or something with the boys. And I said something about it, like, oh, probably the boys were able to throw it harder. And they were up in arms. I got the concept that I could possibly think that a boy could be stronger than a girl. No, boys and girls are equal. So we had a long conversation. And after a long time, I got them to acknowledge that being fear does not mean being equal. And the fact that men are biologically stronger is not even necessarily a good thing. And certainly not like something that you should get nervous about, right? So let's clarify what exactly the sages have in mind by these. Phrases. When the sages say, "Thank you, God, for not having created me as a non-Jew," are we referring to like a non-Jew like Noah, or like Mr. Shalach, right? Non-Jews who have achieved tremendous heights. We're Referring to like a non-Jew like Eliezer, who was the servant of Abraham. And according to the Gemara, one of the reasons the Gemara suggests why it is that the Jews have to go into exile in Egypt for over two hundred years is why, because Abraham misused Eliezer, who was a servant, right? In a non-Jewish person, but was an incredibly holy person. And Abraham asked him to do something for him. He should not have asked him to do it because Eliezer was too holy to do that kind of object. And that's why we went into exile. So is the sages thought process, non-Jews are awful people. They're not worthy of being in this world, You know, some sort of racist agenda. Absolutely not. Are the sages that telling us that servants are not worthy of our consideration? The Gemara tells us, Rabban Gamliel, who was the prince of Israel and was the Nasi, was the leader of the Jewish people. He had a servant whose name was Tavi, who was a non-Jewish servant. And he said about Tavi, Abdi, Tavi, my servant, he was a Talmud Chacham. He was a Torah scholar. I can tell you this, if if Rabbi Gamliel came today and called anyone on the earth today a Torah scholar, that would be something to be proud of. So he calls his own servant a Torah scholar. This is not, uh, once again, we're not trying to say servants are bad. That's not the perspective of Jewish people at all. In terms of saying, I'm glad I was not created like a woman. What kind of woman are you talking about here? The matriarchs who are prophetesses, Miriam, Esther, like there were so many wonderful, incredibly holy people are holier than anyone walking the face of the earth today. So that really what the sages meant. I'm glad I wasn't created like a woman because a woman is what? What are we trying to say? The sages recognized deeply that everyone has a specific mission and everyone is here for a specific purpose. And my purpose, might be more than your purpose it might be less than your purpose we don't know i actually did a gemara yesterday it just reminded me i did a gemara yesterday that talks about our inability to discern whose blood is redder it's impossible for us to ever determine that one person is more valuable than another person because we don't know who's more valuable in god's calculation just because i'm x y and z and you're abc maybe abc is more valuable in god's eyes maybe xyz is we have no idea we don't know god's we don't know God's algorithms. So therefore, I can never say that I'm more red. My blood is more red than another individual. So what are we really expressing our thanks for? And wh- why are we using this terminology? So the answer is like this. The answer is we are expressing our thanks for having obligated us in 613 commandments. Non-Jews are obligated in the seven Noahide laws, which is it's more than seven. It's really in the 50s at least, but it's not 613. A servant, is obligated in mitzvot basically exactly the same way as a woman is. What are they not obligated in? They're obligated in all mitzvot. What they're not obligated in is mitzvot, I say, shehazman, grama. Positive commandments that are time bound, that when a specific time comes, then you're obligated to do that commandment. Women and servants are not obligated to do that. Men are. So when we thank God, what are we thanking God for? thanking God for having given us the opportunity to fulfill all of these mitzvahs, which are more than non-Jews, which are more than servants, and which are more than women. When the Gemara tells us that a woman and a slave is the same, what are we trying to say? The Gemara knew. We are not talking about statuses. This is not a, a caste system. That's not what's going on over here. The patri- patriarchalism or, or, you know, chauvinism was very, very foreign to the Gemara. There was no concept like that. Everybody had their own specific role to play. What the Gemara meant is who has more mitzvot opportunities? Women do not have the same mitzvot opportunities as men. Rav Schwab and Rav Hirsch before him explained why is that? So ask a question to yourself. Adam and Eve, they have one mitzvah, only one mitzvah, but there are only one commandment that they have to do. Don't eat from the eight Hadas. Okay, presumably they were pretty primitive people, and that's why they didn't get so many sophisticated mitzvot as we have today, 613 commandments. The sages don't tell us that at all. The sages tell us that angels saw Adam and thought he was God himself. He was an incredibly holy individual. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. Because Adam was on such a high level, there was only one mitzvah left for him to do to rectify his existence and to perfect himself. Women have an inherent level of kedushah, inherent level of spirituality, of connection to God. Men do not have. Men, therefore, are obligated to do certain actions at specific time periods. As time periods come up, you do that action. Why? Because you need that reminder, what we call an oath, a sign. A brit milah, circumcision, is called an oath, a sign of a covenant between us and God. Why don't women need the sign of the covenant between them and God? It's not going to be the same thing, but maybe a different sign. Well, the answer is women have that inherent connection. They don't need it. The fact that women don't have the same mitzvah opportunities as us, that is in no way a negation of women's value. That being said, when it comes to fulfilling a mitzvah, is it better to fulfill a mitzvah because you choose to do so out of your own volition, optional mitzvah, or better to fulfill a mitzvah when God obligated you to fulfill a mitzvah? The answer is the Gemara tells us, it's a question, but the Gemara tells us, it is better to fulfill a mitzvah when you are obligated to do a mitzvah. So although it is true, That women might be on a higher plane spiritually. When they start off the game, they already have a head start. And men start from behind. Technically, when we have the opportunity to do a mitzvah that we were commanded to do, there is a greater level of fulfilling God's will than it was a commandment. When we thank God in the morning for not having made us a Gentile, for not having made us a woman, for not having made us a servant, we are thanking God as men for these opportunities that he commanded us to do. Women say a little bit of a different blessing. They say, blessed are you God for having made me according to his will. They are very focused on, God created me exactly as I should be. And I am exactly who I should be, exactly where I should be, and with exactly the right amount of mitzvahs for my soul. Right? Souls, by the way, are not male or female, right? just to speak that out. right? So. The idea of thinking of this like this anti, you know, it's coming from the rabbis who had this chauvinistic worldview. It is so far into the truth and so far from their their actual opinions about men and women. It's a travesty, but it's important for us to recognize what the true purpose of these blessings are. All these blessings are about expressing gratitude for different things that we've received from God. And these blessings in particular are expressing gratitude in regards to these specific mixed vote opportunities that we have to do or don't have. Okay, so I think we're going to stop here. Um, So everybody should enjoy their final moments of Hanukkah, right, when the last uh, couple of hours of Hanukkah and focus on the idea that we're bringing, we're bringing that light to the world, right? It's It's not necessarily just light as in a amorphous idea of light. Really, it is the light of the Torah, right? That's what our task is, to bring the light of the Torah, to cut through the darkness and to give people a beacon of light in a world that is morally ambiguous and to figure out what we are supposed to do based on on, on what the program has for us.